software is literally going to eat the world because it needs <laughs> to power all these things, right? Yeah, yeah. But you could, you could argue that before software existed in the way it does today, there was a concept from Intel called Moore's Law where you're doubling the capacity of chips every year. And this, this is going to break that Moore's yeah. Law, right? You got it. Hi, I'm Rand Fishkin from Oz, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy from ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Thanks very much for joining the podcast. Today, I interview a very special guest whose co-founder I interviewed in episode one of this podcast series. Do check out that episode. Now, a topic that came up a lot in this podcast was that of recurring income, which has been discussed in detail in episode two of this podcast series. So be sure to check that out too. If you'd like assistance with any of the concepts discussed in this or any of the other podcast episodes, feel free to book a consulting session with me at ProductiveInsights.com forward slash hire. That's ProductiveInsights.com forward slash H-I-R-E. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Welcome everyone. Today's guest is an expert in SaaS, also known as Software as a Service, Content and Growth Hacking. He's the co-founder of Kissmetrics.com and Crazy Egg, which allows you to analyze the behavior of your visitors on your website through heat maps based on visitor clicks. He's worked with high-profile clients and has most recently been known about his excellent work in the growth hacking area. He's also got a weekly newsletter called SaaS Weekly, where he shares relevant content for anyone who's interested in SaaS as a business. His blog is called Hitenism.com, which is H-I-T-E-N-I-S-M.com. And I've had the honor of speaking with his co-founder at Kissmetrics on the first episode. That was Neil Patel. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Hithain Shah. Welcome, Hithain. Hi. Glad to be here. Great to have you. So, Hithain, could you talk to us a little bit about your journey and what led you to embrace the SaaS model? Sure. So uh, my co-founder, Neil, and I, we, we, in 2003, we started a consulting company doing a bunch of internet marketing, so a lot of online marketing stuff. And uh, really quickly, we discovered that we could make money, uh, but we'd be working for other people, so all these other businesses, and we wanted to sort of build revenue that was our own. And at that time, uh, this was about 2003, so at that time, about 2004, 2005, we had started noticing a lot of... Um, companies building software and I think SaaS as a delivery model of software so software as a service where you could use it on a website and, and it would actually you would log in sign up and stuff like that I know all this sounds funny right now but uh, it was definitely a newer thing especially for B2B yeah. um, and because in B2B what used to happen is you would create software and then it would be downloadable in Windows or Mac or whatever and it would be software and it would sit all in your hard drive it would run on your hard drive but as, as servers and things like that became more powerful, people started putting these on servers uh, in, you know, in racks and stuff like that. And big businesses needed what they called on-premise software. Mm -hmm. right? So software service is the idea that like, there's a cloud and there's a bunch of computers in the cloud and they are doing the things and you're, you're just you know, sort of using the software through your web browser. And I think that that was a big paradigm shift. And software as a service is simply... Being able to you you know being able to utilize software without having to download it or without having to install it right from a website. So I think that's the fundamental start. Uh, and now obviously we have apps which also run in the same way. Many apps that are 
on top of SaaS uh, services. So it's just a way to deliver software, and it's a way that's more efficient and makes it so that the people using the software, so all of our customers, they don't have to worry about installing it. The other fantastic thing about software, Hitain, is the fact that it is recurring income, which I talked about in, I think, the second episode of this podcast, which is a fantastic thing for stakeholders who are looking to invest in the business, right? Because when you're looking at venture-backed companies or you're looking at any kind of investment, people always like to have a predictable, steady flow of income rather than lump sum income. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a quick second. So I think what you're actually referring to, what I like to do is I like to break out software as a service, so software delivered through your browser mm-hmm. or your phone, mm-hmm. uh, and break that out into that's a way to do software. And then the monetization, the most common monetization of that software is subscription businesses. Sure. But you could argue that Facebook is also software as a service because it's software used in your browser, but yet they don't monetize on a recurring basis like you described. They right. monetize through advertising, right? Sure. So I think it's important because I believe today you can build a subscription business that isn't necessarily software. Right. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So I think I it's important to just talk about it like that. But the most common business model for SaaS software is being able to charge a monthly and or yearly fee. That's a great point. I totally agree with you. It doesn't have to be just software as a service. But what I was saying is that I think that it's very attractive aspect of software as a service. There are companies like Facebook that are doing software as a service without having a recurring element to it. But then there's other companies like Microsoft, Microsoft 365, they've come out with. That's quite interesting. I haven't got any visibility on how much has impacted their profitability, but I'm assuming they're still doing it. So it must be working well for them. I think the more, more interesting one today, just, just to riff on it this for a second, is actually Adobe. So Adobe has taken yeah. their download model and put it into a license model that looks like a yearly fee or whatever, or yes. monthly even. Uh, and so they're probably a closer one, although I know a lot of people don't like Adobe. I'm not their yeah. biggest fan either at this yeah, point. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are probably the, one of the most successful at switching from desktop software to a license and or like, you know, not even license, but like a SaaS model. Absolutely. I actually wrote down in my notes 365 and Adobe. That was the other one I was actually thinking of. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk a bit about, you know, how does an entrepreneur who's thinking about software as a service evaluate it as a business model for themselves? Let's say we have an entrepreneur who's got a business and it's got a software element to it, or they're mainly working in software. What are the things that they should be looking for, the questions they should be asking to decide whether software as a service is something that they should consider embracing for their business? You mean as somebody who's, uh, who needs to, who wants to create a business? Yes. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So I think when you're creating a business, there's obviously a lot of different models, but if you have the ability to get software built or build it, build it yourself, um, you should consider just building software to solve the problem. And, and there's some examples, right? Like you can take software that you sort of, uh, you can consider this software, but even having to manually put things in spreadsheets and then doing things with that, yeah. whether it's a Google spreadsheet or an Excel spreadsheet, already there's software that can help automate a lot of that. Right. Some of that software you can stitch together from existing software, but you might realize that the specific problem you're trying to target requires a specific configuration of that software, which would be a good scenario where you would build it. So to me, the, the right framework to think about is, is the problem I'm trying to solve and the solution I have in mind is that is software going to help make that better? And is mm-hmm. software the way that people understand, you know, th- this sort of thing that I'm trying to do? And and a common thing that I find is if you're looking at a 
B2B problem, which means you're talking to businesses about solving some problem for them, the most common thing you see is that a lot of businesses use spreadsheets yeah. to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. So if you can discover that about the problems that you're working with and the customer base, and you realize that they're using spreadsheets or something else that's very manual, yes. that's a great opportunity to think about solving it with software. That's an excellent, excellent barometer. Thank you for that. I've worked a lot in the corporate world and I've seen large corporates working a lot with spreadsheets. So absolutely, small businesses work a lot with spreadsheets. So that's something the listeners can definitely take away and ask themselves if their customers are using spreadsheets in their business. And if so, there's an opportunity. That's like a trigger to think about whether software as a service might be something that would work for that solution. And the other great point you made was it's about solving a problem, but I guess you'd ask yourself, can the problem be solved more effectively and comprehensively through a recurring service type software? You got it. Now, you said something really interesting earlier on about Facebook being software as a service. I've never actually thought of it that way, so I'd love to understand a bit more about how you see it as software as a service. Sure, it's an app and it's a great social app. Yes, it's a social facilitation kind of software, but maybe I'm already answering my own question, but I'm just interested to hear your take on it. Yeah, I mean, to me, software as a service is basically the idea that software is providing a service for you that um, you want or you need. And just by that explanation, Facebook is actually, it doesn't work without what we call software, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work without a bunch of code being ran, which is software, executed on your behalf as an end user. And so to me, software is basically, I mean, this is why Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world, right? Because essentially everything that's not software is very likely to turn into software or be powered by software at some point, right? The fact that we can both be on video at the same time on Skype is software, right? The fact that there's people out there that can view this through the internet, it's software that powers the internet, right? So I know I'm extracting it out to a very sort of generic place, but yes. like if you think about all the things you use, they're essentially software. Now, if you use Word, Microsoft Word, on your desktop, and it's not 365, that is also software. Yep. But it's not delivered as a service. And, and I think the service aspect of it is where people get confused. But a service is something that you can continuously use, right? And it, it sort of runs on your behalf. Um, while I think a desktop product isn't quite like that. So the cool thing about software is even though you're not logged into Facebook, there's all this stuff going on with your Facebook, right? People are liking your stuff. People are commenting on it. But it's all happening and you don't have to do anything. That's mm-hmm. the service part in my mind. And right. while with Microsoft Word, it only works when you go do something. Right. So it's just software. I don't think it's a service. Okay, got it. That's interesting. Now, there's something really interesting that came up as you were talking that occurred to me, and that is IBM is working on this super, super tiny microchip. It's a wafer-thin chip, something like seven nanometers. It's comparable to the size of DNA. I'm very curious to know what your thoughts are on a glimpse into the future, maybe five or ten years down the track. What is this going to do to software as a service when you have the hardware that is small enough to implant it to humans? Hardware doesn't work without software. Yeah. So... The, the applications of the hardware will impact how we think about software. So if we can put uh, a chip in our skin, we need software for that chip to be used or right. to do something meaningful. So the way it's going to change software is it's just like our phones, right? We have these phones now, and they're full of chips. Sure, yeah. they're not as small as that, 
And so the phone is the hardware, the chips are the hardware, and the software is the operating system. Yeah. And then the software is apps built on top of the operating right. system. And so what I would say is that there's going to be, if these chips end up in a lot of human beings, like literally on their skin or embedded in, yes. there's going to be software that needs to be written to make those oh, chips totally. do the things we want to do, right? Totally. So there's going to be, I think there's at, at this point, because of things like what IBM's innovating on and what a lot of other folks are, um, software is literally going to eat the world because it needs <laughs> to power all these things, right? Yeah, yeah. But you could, you could argue that before software existed in the way it does today, there was a concept from Intel called Moore's Law where you're doubling the capacity of chips every year. And this, this is going to break that Moore's yeah. Law, right? You got it, right? Now it's like, and Moore's Law is already broken, right? Yeah. It's been broken for a while because our advances in the hardware and the chip side have definitely far outpaced what anyone can imagine, right? This is why we have these super cool phones in our pockets that basically are more powerful than the first computer I had. And yeah. I'm sure the first computer you had, right? <laughs> and yet they're this small, this thin, and we even have a paradigm of touch with them, right? So, which is a whole new paradigm. So I think as we change, as chips and hardware gets better and better and it gets embedded in different places, uh, this is like the whole Internet of Things. I think this is a good explanation of why people are excited about the Internet of Things because we can take things that are inanimate object, objects, like even like this bottle here that I'm drinking of tea, and it could know that I'm halfway done. It could know a lot of different things if there were chips associated with it, whatever that means, right? Um, and so I think it's just, honestly, on the most basic level, it's quantifying and creating information where information doesn't exist. Yeah. And when you have information, you need software to do something with that information. Absolutely. And I think that the paradigm shifts that are happening with hardware, with the breaking of Moore's law, that's going to introduce possibilities with software that weren't available before. Um, yep. I know you mentioned that your dad is an anesthetist in a conversation you had with Leo Babauta. I was checking yeah. out one of your previous interviews. You should have a chat with your dad about it and see what, you, what he thinks is the future between uh, installing software into human beings and what things can happen out of it. Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm sure he has a lot of good ideas because he really <laughs> focuses on like a lot of the, the breathing and all those other blood and all those other things to make sure that when he puts you to sleep, he also, you know, you also wake right, up. Right, right. And you mentioned yeah. he's an entrepreneur as well, or he yeah. has a very entrepreneurial mindset. So let's come back to the software as a service thing. What are the biggest challenges you've noticed in getting started with software as a service and what's worked best in overcoming them? One thing you already highlighted, which was a great point, which is look at the kinds of solutions that your customers are using and if they're using antiquated things very manual things like excel well there's an opportunity and that in itself is a great way to overcome an obstacle for implementing software as a service or considering it because you don't even know where to start but what are some other tools that the listeners can take to look at software as a service for their offerings yeah i think one of the pitfalls right now is that it's really easy to build software to solve a problem like it's, it's a it's getting fa really fast, fastly commoditized. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that people are, a lot of people are solving the same problem at the same time right? with software and they're different businesses, right? So competition is definitely much more crowded than even when I first started. Um, and I, I think that's an obvious thing that happens to a lot of categories, especially new ones that are exciting and people can make money. Mm -hmm. So one pitfall is that like you might not know it, but you're, you might be entering a crowded market. So I think the... From a small business perspective, if your goal is to be profitable and make money, um, which I know should be a lot of people's goals, but oftentimes <laughs> it's not, um, 
if that's your goal, and I'm assuming the audience is very focused on the, those kind of things, mm-hmm. then the, what I would recommend is find a niche customer base that seems kind of obscure, but yet is something a customer base you can reach or you've learned how to reach and solve their problem with software. And that sort of mitigates the competition aspect because if you pick something niche enough, but yet big enough too, uh, or something where you have a uni- unique opportunity to reach the audience or a unique... Uh, opportunity where you understand the audience better than other people because maybe you did their job years ago or something like that uh, or you have a lot of friends in that industry then you you'll basically be able to build the best software for them right and so i don't go into a market or think about it unless i'm very confident that i can build the best software in that market and and there's a lot of a lot of things like what i suggested that help you do that and i think um one of the biggest things is um literally being able to um, find opportunities that other people are not finding. One good way I think about finding a software opportunity is trying to solve the problem without software. Would you agree with that? And then trying to automate it using software? Yeah. And usually, instead of even trying to solve it without software, I would try to find opportunities where people are trying to solve it without software. And then see if, and then the first step is literally see if you can help them, right? Mm-hmm. Manually, right? Like uh, have better processes. But ultimately, like I think, uh, it's it's useful to solve things in manual ways for them, but make them feel like they're not manual, right? right. Uh, so I think that's a useful tactic to getting something out faster, mm-hmm. um, because some things take actually do take some time and money and effort uh, to automate. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I, I like that, but there's also really good tools like Zapier and uh, If This Then That mm-hmm. and Segment.com. And even intercom to some extent that allow you to manually do things um, that you might not be able to do without software otherwise. And if you stitch together these things on the back end, um, that's cool. Um, but if you if you uh, get too far in that thinking, you might actually never build software. So you want to be careful and, and, and know when to go from a manual process to software. Mm, that's a good point. Uh, now, you mentioned finding an obscure niche, but that's something that's not too small. One of the ways that I find relatively easy to do research on that is use Google AdWords just to see how many searches are for a certain term. Do you recommend that as a good way to start, or do you think there's other things people can be doing to try and assess a niche? In, in other words, something that's not so obscure that there's just one person in the world looking for it, for that solution, but then you know, not too broad either. Yeah, so there's a process called customer development uh, where you go, you know, learn what problems your customer base has with very deliberate sort of interviewing where you're not really talking to them about a solution. You're actually trying to figure out what, what the way I do it is I'll just get stories out of them. So I can, I, I can be like, like, let's say I'm talking to a marketer and I want to solve a problem around email campaigns for them. I would ask them, hey, the last time you created an email campaign, how did it go? Tell me all about it. What did you do first? And, and you know, what happened? And then eventually, if I ask enough people that, their stories turn into very clear patterns of problems that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, you would attack that problem in whatever smart ways that you'd like to. And so if you can find, the first step is identifying a group of people who you want to solve a problem for. Yeah. The next step would be go talk to them in the right way so you can understand what problems they have. Generally, people like telling stories. So the way I like to find problems is like find all the stories. So find stories, good and bad, sometimes ugly of like when things got messed up and things like that. Those are really useful stories. Mm -hmm. And then once I have these, I ideally record them and or take really good notes and then just try to find the pattern in like 20 of these conversations. 
and generally it becomes really clear. Like a lot of times people, you know, like one stupid problem with email marketing that I discovered when I did this a while ago is people are really scared about broken links. So if you found a way to identify broken links before they actually send the campaign, that would solve a huge problem for them. Because it's, right. in, it's inevitable that if you, even for like, if you've sent, let's say, even a dozen emails using mm-hmm. these email systems, you've likely ran into the problem of having a broken link. Yeah. And that's a big problem. So sure. that, that, that would imply a lot of different ideas around solutions if mm-hmm. I were to solve that. But that, that's the kind of pattern you're looking for, right? You're trying to find what is an important problem that's worth solving that I can help them solve. Another pretty good tool I've come across is the Ask methodology. I interviewed Ryan Levesque in an earlier episode, and he's written the book called Ask, and I quite like his approach because it starts with a broad form of low-level commitment surveys and then moves incrementally into deeper levels of surveys so it doesn't terrify or frighten the prospect away, but yet you know, eases them into getting, divulging more information. And sort of like SurveyMonkey, it has a stepped kind of approach, but it's a little bit more scientifically done. And he also has some software, as a matter of fact, software as a service that allows you to deliver that survey formula. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I haven't heard about that before. It's episode number 26. It's an excellent episode. And Ryan goes through the various steps involved to really understand your customers. You should check it out. Cool. Okay, so let's talk about some quick wins or actions a listener can take if they want to get started with SaaS. You've already touched on some of them. You've talked about looking at how they're solving problems, looking at problems can be solved more effectively with software. Is there any other things you would suggest that they could look at if they want to get started with SaaS? Yeah, I mean, you obviously need some ability to build software. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you don't have ability to build software, then a lot of these manual processes can be really helpful in you validating that it's worth building software. Wow. So I think me, I'm actually not an engineer, although I fake it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I only fake it because I can out-Google most engineers so I can find information faster than them. Okay. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I try to get as far as I can without actually bothering an engineer. And so I would learn those skills around like how do you build software without actually having to build software. So your ideas around manually putting stuff together is great. I think these days there's so many tools out there to help you create a landing page that you can collect emails, yeah. right? Why don't you go further and create a landing page that looks like software where you collect their email, collect info, and you actually are able to start servicing them without actually giving them software, right? right? And, right. and, and that that's usually works really well in things like data entry or things where they're doing a lot of this manual stuff that's just easy to automate. So my biggest tip is like, Find opportunities to automate things that people are doing manually. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a little bit of a repetition, but like I've always found that to work, right? It's like software should make you more efficient as a human being, right? One of my friends from uh, useronboard.com has this great graphic where he says, here's Super Mario, here's the flower, here's how Super Mario gets super powered you know, with the fireballs after he gets a flower. Your product is the flower. Can you give every customer that comes through your door a flower that t- gives them a superpower, right? Yeah. And I really like that because it doesn't matter how that superpower is given to them mm. as long as they feel like they have a superpower now. And your software is what should enable them to feel like a superhero, like they have the superpower all of a sudden and they can't live without it. So all, all I do in my businesses is work backwards, try to find what that superpower needs to be and then work backwards from there on how to solve it. 
And that customer development that I discussed earlier, that helps you find that problem without any engineering, any software, which means any human being with no skills can probably do it, right? And so once you do that and you've identified a problem, a lot of people think the next step is let's go build software. Mm. To me, the next step is let's go see if we can solve that problem better for people regardless of building software. How can we solve that problem today better for them? Is there things we need to stitch together? Is there a bunch of existing software we can use in the background even if we have to pay for it on top of our service, right? So I think the, the biggest tip I have is get creative about how you solve that problem. Make your constraint the fact that you don't want to build software. Like your goal isn't to build software in the beginning. Your goal is to make sure you've validated the way to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ways you can go there. It doesn't just stop at identifying the problem. You can even solve the problem without building software because then when you actually spend the money, the time, the effort into building the software, it's more likely to be the right solution for people. And that's the biggest risk with software, which is, does this, is this software actually solving a legitimate problem? And can I go get customers? that, you know, uh, want that problem solved. You hit on such an important point here then because so many people get so excited about software. It's just like when you start a business, you spend ages on your website and your business card, but that is the execution. That's the delivery mechanism. That's not the solution of the problem. So I agree, you've got to focus on the core issue, which is solving the problem and solving it effectively, and then consider the software element, which is the execution or the delivery of the solution. Yeah, software is just a tool. We have a lot of tools, right? Spreadsheets are tools, yeah. right? All these things are tools. They're not really, we treat them like the solution, but really software is just another tool. That's, yeah. that's, I think, the way to think about software. And when you realize that, you're like, there are not, that is, software isn't necessarily always the best tool. Hmm. Wow, that's very, very wise. <laughs> Words of wisdom. What were the books that have had the biggest impact on you, Hithen, and that you would recommend our listeners check out? Yeah, one of one of my favorite books. If you're like uh, sort of creatively stuck, uh, is called the the War of Art. Oh yes. So it's a play on the art of war, and it's like if you're just stuck and you you're, you you know a lot of people come to me like I don't have any ideas. If I talk to them for ten minutes, they'll have more ideas than they know what to do with. Yeah. yeah. If they read this book, it'll explain to them why they have so many ideas yeah, and yeah. why they're not motivated to do anything about it. And hopefully, it'll give you tactics and tips or even motivation to go do something about it. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite books. I pick it up from time to time when I'm a little demotivated uh, or a lot demotivated. Uh, another, another book that I really like is called The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Okay. Uh, and the, the book essentially gives you a lot of th- thinking tools, frameworks. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that they think, that, that they, one of the tips they give you, which I've used in this podcast already, is whatever you think, think the opposite. Just even for five minutes. Right. right? And it'll help you actually know if the thing you were thinking is the right thing or not. Just think the opposite. Yeah. We all can think of the opposite of anything, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think, I think there's a whole bunch of other tools there. There's five of them, and, and they're really useful in everyday life. And, cool. uh, and I've read the book many times. So those are my two book recommendations. Cool. I, I haven't checked out the second one, but I've read The War of Art, and I absolutely love it. I love how he talks about resistance, and he almost gives it a, a personality. So, yes, I strongly recommend that that book as well. And I'll check out the five elements of effective thinking. Now, how do listeners find out more about you, Hithen, if they would like to? And is there anything else you would like to add before we say goodbye? Sure. So I was lucky enough to get Heaton.com, H-I-T-E-N.com. I know you say my name the Indian way. Most people yeah. say it Eaton. Yes. Uh, so it's Heaton.com. I'll take it any way I can get it. Just say my name and I'm happy. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, Heaton.com, H-I-T-E-N.com. And that's where my 
SaaS weekly newsletter is. I'm, I'm guessing that's why you asked me about SaaS because yes. I have a weekly newsletter. Yes, there's, which I subscribe uh, to. Yeah, there's a bunch of people subscribe to it and I'm, I'm super excited to keep doing that. I'm at like, I think I just had my 50th uh, newsletter this week, so it's been almost a year. Um, and and so I think that's, that's the thing that I, I'm doing because I love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing I would tell people to look at. Another thing I do just because I love it uh, is, is uh, my Twitter account where I share a lot of links. In fact, I started sharing a lot of links on Twitter before a lot of people were doing that. And that turned into a thing. And a lot of people uh, like my feed as well. And that's at H-N-S-H-A-H. Mm-hmm. And that's my Twitter handle. And so a lot of people follow me on there if they're into Twitter uh, because I share a lot of links. And that's more founder stuff, entrepreneurship, starting companies, all that kind of stuff. And, and sometimes, obviously, I'll, I'll tweet about tea and, and chilies and stuff I like because uh, that's what you're supposed to do on Twitter, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so those are my things. Um, I, otherwise, I'm just happy to help people. So my email is also pretty public. It's my username on Twitter at Gmail. Okay. And uh, honestly, I, I just love learning from other people and I love helping them solve their problems. So uh, that's pretty much all I got for you. Cool, man. I hope to stay in touch with you on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at AshRoyHelps. Cool. Thank you so much for the excellent value you've given to my listeners. And I will definitely look forward to keeping in touch. And maybe one day we can have you back on uh, the growth hacking topic. Yeah, sure. Love to talk about that. Okay, so there you have it. That was Hitain Shah, the founder of Kissmetrics, whose co-founder I interviewed in episode one of this podcast series. So be sure to check that out. Now, if you need any assistance with any of the concepts discussed in this podcast or any of the other episodes, please book a consulting session with me on ProductiveInsights.com forward slash H-I-R-E. If you found this podcast to be useful, please share it with friends. Your referral is the ultimate compliment. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comments section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?